They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jarius by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for he said. If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who had said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? 
But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Most of us have had the experience of dealing with housing projects at some point or another. Sometimes it's because we're dealing with an emergency and we need a professional. In the past year, I've known people who have had sewer backups, so the entire basement was flooded with stuff you don't want in your house ever. I've had somebody uh, that I know who came home from a vacation only to find that their pipes had frozen, the shower head had popped off, and they needed a plumber. Mold in the drywall, trees falling on houses. You know what it's like when you deal with a housing emergency of any sort. You need to call a professional. You're desperate. You need somebody to come and help to make things right. Sometimes it's a little more that we're, we're in the process of trying to proactively think through how we can make things better. So some people in here have gone through the process of having an addition or a remodel to parts of your house. Some of you have even had entire houses built from the ground up where you got to pick all sorts of parts to it, what the doors look like and where the kitchen goes. One of the most intriguing ways of doing housing projects and building is restoration. Restoration is when you take an old building and make it new. This happened a couple of years ago in Vienna. There was a, a building that I'll call the Once Upon a Time House. There it is right there. You might recognize this from a couple of years ago in Vienna. Now, this was a dollhouse shop and a toy shop, and eventually it got sold, and I had the chance to go inside of it. It was a mess inside. They cleared out all the toys, and what was left was a pretty rundown building. The basement was constantly flooding. The upstairs had mice nests everywhere. Um, the roof was caving in. It was an absolute and total mess. But it was also an old house. Uh, Tommy Stotts, a builder here in Vienna who does restoration, he ended up buying the house and he took me around it and showed me the sorts of things he was going to be doing. He wanted to keep the basic structure in place, the history that was there, the bones of the place, the original intention but he also wanted to capture a vision for what it could look like. What might it look like if you blew out a wall here? Well, first he had to put up some pillars to make sure the thing didn't fall over. He also had to make sure that the water was out of the basement. Then he had to design and get some ideas for what the second floor might look like, where you should have windows in the building. And eventually he turned it into this next building. It's the exact same one, totally restored. A complete transformation, a solid and beautiful structure off of something that really probably should have been bulldozed before it. Sometimes we go to a professional to just stop up the sewer. Sometimes you go to somebody to restore to original intention and beauty something that maybe had it in the, in the background behind it. 
In Mark chapter 5, Jesus meets three people. All three of them are in desperate need of an emergency help. The man with a legion of demons, the woman with bleeding, and Jairus with his daughter. But each of them comes to Jesus with an emergency, and he ends up doing a total restoration. In Mark's gospel, we find Jesus doing this again and again. And in fact, one of the commentators said that when you're looking at Mark's gospel, reading any passage, you should ask two questions. What does this tell me about Jesus? And what does this tell me about being a follower of Jesus? Because pretty much the whole story lays out in that way. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And who is this Jesus? And we see that same thing happening here. In Jesus entering their emergencies and doing restoration, we get a picture of Jesus and what it means to be his disciple. So let's go ahead and look at this passage and see if it has anything for us as well. The first thing we see is the state of emergency that these people are in. The man with the legion, I'm just going to call him legion even though that's not his name. Legion is possessed by demons. He is a Gentile and a pagan who's living the most horrendous life you could possibly get. Mark describes it for us. Says that he was possessed by demons and he was out of control so that his family and friends tried to chain him. And he was so out of control that he would break the shackles and run away. He lived amongst the tombs, meaning he lived where there was dead and decaying bodies. He was naked, probably starving. And he was wailing and crying all night and all day, hurting himself, beating himself with stones, cutting himself. He lived a subhuman existence. If you talk about being made in the image of God, everything about Legion was the image of God being destroyed. He no longer looked like a person. Jesus meets him first. The second person he meets looks very different. It's Jairus. Now Jairus, we hear, was a synagogue ruler. And it's interesting because right away we realize that this means this guy is a man of status and wealth and influence. He's named because probably readers who were a couple decades after Jesus, readers knew the name Jairus. Oh, you know Jairus, the town council member, the famous mayor. The, he was a leader in the community. But he too has an emergency, something he can't deal with on his own. He says, my little girl is sick. My daughter is sick. She is nearing death. He comes to him with this desperate emergency that he can't control on his own. And the third person that comes to Jesus is a woman. And all we know is it's a woman. And it's a direct contrast to Jairus. The two stories go hand in hand, but think about it. Jairus is named and even his title is given. This is just a woman. And in a day and age when women were second-class citizens, this woman was a second class of second class citizens. Her story was that she had been dealing with bleeding, some sort of menstruation illness for 12 years. So that meant that she was religiously unclean by the Jewish standards. She could not participate in any of the cultural festivals. When a woman was in her period of menstruation, she was not allowed to be touched by anyone and she couldn't go to synagogue. And when they were having big events, big celebrations, she had to stay at home. For 12 years, this woman could not be near anyone. She was a complete and total nobody, an outcast that nobody wanted anywhere near them. She had spent all her money going to physicians and nothing had made her well. 
And it's interesting, when we get these pictures of these people, a Gentile pagan possessed man with no clothes, a synagogue ruler, one of the most honored men in the city, and a woman who is not even to be named, who has no place in society. And Jesus meets each of their emergencies. Doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, or what you're dealing with. He's available for all of them. You know, as Mark's telling these stories, he's piling on the prepositions because he wants us to enter into their plight, to hear their story of suffering, to enter into the story and be able to walk with these people and not just see Legion as some man out there, a wild man, but to be his parents at home saying, where is my son? To not just think of this woman and her suffering, but to think about her as your sister. To think about it as your daughter who's dying. He wants us to enter in. And my guess is if we went around the room today, most of us could identify some friend or family member who's dealing with an emergency, who's dealing with crisis in their life, who's dealing with being outcast, being bound, suffering health issues, facing a difficult season in front of them. We didn't have to go very far before we could find people in here dealing with those things. Life falling apart. Jesus wants us to hear ourselves in these stories as well. In these passages, we then get that Jesus responds to their emergencies. He heals Legion and the woman and Jairus. He enters into their suffering and he confronts it directly. He confronts their desperate need and fixes it. The next picture we get is that of Legion. And instead of being out of control, He's sitting, clothed, and in his right mind. He looks human again. The woman, as soon as she touches Jesus' cloak, the flow of blood dries up. She gets it. She has been made well. The very need she came for, Jesus heals her. And eventually, when Jesus ends up at Jairus' house, he goes in to where the girl has now died. And he says, wake up, and the girl gets up and starts walking around. Jesus hears their emergency, and he meets their need directly. And again, we're called to enter into that story. What is your greatest need? And as I was thinking about this this week, I was thinking... How do we bring our needs to Jesus? Really and truly, how do we bring our emergency needs to Jesus? And maybe even in a better way, how do we live in a constant way of having ourself before Jesus and Jesus with us so we don't just have to call on him in emergencies? You know, if it's dealing with crisis in our life, I think one of the most common ways we think about going to Jesus is in prayer. And I remember a friend of mine when I was back in college talking about insomnia vigils. Now, some of you deal with insomnia just because it's a hereditary or a genetic or a, you know, health issue, but others of us who have dealt with periodic or episodic insomnia, it's often because of stress and anxiety. And what this person was saying was, you know what I've learned how to do is to do something that's in the Bible and in church history, which is called a prayer vigil, which means you spend the entire night praying for something. 
Well, what this person was saying was, when I'm dealing with insomnia based on my anxieties, based on stress, I just start praying. And I find one of two things happens. Either I pray for an hour or longer and I end up handing handing the thing over to God or I fall asleep. Because what happens when you start praying? You fall asleep. Everyone knows that. Read the Bible or pray, you will fall asleep. So bring your need, your anxiety before the Lord as you're laying in bed or as you go and kneel down. And, you know, worst case scenario, you spend eight hours praying. That's okay. Or you probably will fall asleep. (laughs) You bring the thing to the Lord in prayer when you're dealing with that emergency. And one of the ways that we do that here at CCV is you can email prayer at ChristChurchVienna.com. Prayer at ChristChurchVienna.com. That is our confidential prayer line where two people will commit to praying for your need confidentially for two weeks. So if you're dealing with something in your life, uh, you know, unemployment or health issues or something with one of your kids, email prayer at ChristChurchVienna.com. It will be passed on to confidential prayer support who will pray for you. And that hints at some of the other need for how we bring Jesus into our crisis and into our daily life. It's we need others. We need community. But we'll talk more about that in a little bit. So we can go to God with our issues, with our emergencies when we're, when, with prayer, but I also think that there's a way that we should probably be cultivating Jesus' presence on a daily basis. So we don't just go to him when our daughter is dying. We don't just go to him when we've been bleeding for 12 years, but we have him with us all the time. The monastics talked about how when they worked, they were praying. When they were praying, they were working. They went back and forth the same way. There's a way to bring the presence of Jesus into our daily life so that we're always with him and he's always with us. Anne Voskamp, who is an author, blogger, speaker sort of person, she writes about the idea of kitchen theology, practicing the presence of God in the most mundane ways. This is what she wrote on one of her blog entries. Theology can be talked about on Sundays, like we're doing here, but it's actually lived in kitchens. In the noise and clatter of my kitchen, while several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God in as great tranquility as if I were on my knees. And yeah, there are kids and there is loud and there is clatter, but this is all that matters. When you have an overwhelmed world, you don't have to have an underwhelmed soul if Christ fills the thoughts. That's what I want to be able to do. Not just run to Jesus when I'm in need, but maybe learn to live in the presence of Jesus in my work, in my conversations, in my messes. So whether I'm dealing with crisis or with peace, Jesus is always with me. You know, Jesus responds to their emergencies He responds to their crisis, but he doesn't stop by meeting that immediate need that they seem to have. He goes on to restore them. He does a restoration project in each of their lives. And we see this in a couple of key verses in these episodes. With Legion, Legion, we would think, needs the demons cast out. And that's right, he does. But Jesus doesn't stop by just casting out the demons. It's interesting, at the very end, Legion says, Jesus, you're going back over to the other side, to the Jewish side of the lake. I want to come with you. Every other person Jesus has met, he says, come and follow me. 
leave everything and come and follow me, but not to Legion. To Legion, he says, go home. Go home. It's an incredible act of mercy. How many years had it been since he had slept in his own bed? How many years had it been since he'd had dinner with his family? Since he had celebrated with his friends? How many years had it been? Don't follow me, Legion. Just go and be at home. Jesus doesn't just restore his humanity by casting out the demons. He restores him socially by sending him home. Restoration is spiritual and social for Legion. And he does the same thing with the woman. It's not just that the woman's blood stopped flowing and she was physically healed. Jesus says that crazy thing, who touched me in the midst of this crowd? But why does he do that? Because he doesn't just want to be a magician who's going to make her all better if you randomly touch his cloak. He wants to have a relationship with her. In fear and trembling, she comes and tells him the whole story and Jesus listens because ultimately he doesn't just want to solve her problems. He wants to know her and for her to know him. He wants to be her brother, her friend. And so she comes and interacts with him and tells her story to him. And all of a sudden, it's not just, I pray to Jesus to heal me, it's Jesus knows me. And not only that, but she is also being restored socially right? This woman had been unclean for 12 years, unable to enter into public spaces, no, no, no longer able to be around other people. And in, in engaging her, do you know what Jesus is doing? He's telling everybody out there who's like, oh, it's that woman. What's she doing in the crowd here? Jesus is saying, she's okay now. She's my daughter. She has been made well. She has shalom, peace, wholeness. She has been restored before God. Don't be afraid of her anymore. He's forcing her to come out publicly in a way that she doesn't want to do so that he doesn't just heal her physically. He's able to heal her emotionally and socially as well. And in a sense, that's what he does with Jairus' daughter. We see Jesus, the powerful one who can cast out demons. Jesus, the powerful one who can overcome death, entering into somebody's house and acting like a mom or a dad. He says, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. As one preacher I heard talked about, this is basically like a parent going into a child's bedroom and waking them up. Honey, it's time to get up. Hey, kiddo, you, you got to get ready for, for school. He's raising the dead. And he does it with gentleness of a mom or a dad waking his little kid. He's not just coming to solve our problems. He's coming to show us his love and tenderness and mercy. Wake up. It's just death. Up. And then he says, Give her something to eat. It's breakfast time. She's probably hungry. Wake up. Pancakes are ready. 
Oh, there's bacon too. Well, not there, but. <laughs> he's not just restoring her to life. He's restoring her to her family. Do you see what's going on here? The kind of salvation that Jesus brings is not just stopping up your, your, your plumbing issues. It's, it's not just casting out the demons and pushing away the bad stuff. He's healing physically and spiritually and emotionally and socially because the salvation that Jesus brings covers everything. And Jesus wants to do the same in us. He wants to restore us completely. He wants to do restoration projects in us, not just get rid of the mold. But that's hard for some of us because for a lot of us, the way that we go to Jesus, the way that we do this whole God and religion thing is when there is an emergency or maybe we just want a little bit of remodeling in the life of our, in the house of our life. And this is particularly true for men. And so I'm really just going to talk to men for a little bit because women seem to have this one figured out a little bit better. Men, we have this need to be competent. It starts when we're kids because we're constantly trying to prove ourselves to each other. I remember this as a boy out in the woods with my friends when we would have we'll call them spitting contests, and see who could spit the furthest. You're always trying to compete with one another, aren't you? And you know what happens when men get older? They don't do spitting contests anymore, but when they walk into a room with other men they haven't met, there's this sort of bravado, either silence or arrogance, that's trying to size each other up. Because we just want to look competent. We don't want to look foolish. We want to look like we know what we're talking about, we're good at what we do, and our life is somewhat in order. So even when men get to become friends with one another, if another man asks him, hey, how are things going? The the word that comes out of our mouth every time is okay. Because we're men, we're in control. We can do it. Many of us approach religion in that way hey, I've got my blueprint for my life, God. It's right here. And I'd like you to look over it. Tell me that this blueprint's okay. Just give a second set of eyes, you know? Or maybe it's like, you know, hey, hey, God, maybe you could come in and give me some ideas on on some of the interior design because that's not an area I'm, I'm really good at. Hey, Jesus, you know, should we do hardwoods or new carpeting in here? What do you think about the paint in my life? Should it be bleaker beige or Monroe bisque? Which... We're aiming too low, men. Don't go to God only for guidance or some strength, a little help. God is not looking to do a little bit of remodeling in our life. He may want to tear down the whole structure and start over again. C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity, something that we've read here before, He writes, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house, and at first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that these jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. It does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. 
throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace, and he intends to come and live in it himself. Jesus is not just remodeling, but he wants to restore us to the original design to make us ready for eternity. So when we're asking the question, what do we see about being a disciple, a follower of Jesus in these passages, it's more than going to Jesus for guidance or strength or a magician or a doctor. It's learning to hand all of life over to the purposes of God. Legion wants to go with Jesus, and Jesus has other plans on where he should go. The same should be true in our life. We have ideas about when God should act. Jairus says, now, Jesus. She's sick now. Come now, Jesus. You can heal her now. Jesus has other plans. If I wait, she'll be dead. Then I can raise her. We don't know the timing of God, but when we hand over our life to Jesus, it's handing over the timing of God's purposes in our life to Jesus. And not stopping short on what we want him to do in our life. The woman just wanted the blood to stop. Jesus wanted her to meet him and to be reintroduced to the entire community. Do we come to Jesus with our blueprints wanting him to approve them? Or are we willing to hand over the deed? To have Jesus restore us fully, we must give everything to him fully who gave everything fully for us. One way we do that is by giving ourselves to one another. Do you know that in this room, in this room, there are people dealing with the bondage of addictions. There are marriage problems in this room. Amazing, yeah. There's unemployment in this room. There are serious health problems in this room. There are people who are facing incredibly difficult seasons in this room. There's a lot of sorrow and grief in this room. Legion and the woman were outcasts from their community. There are people in this room who feel like that all the time, who don't feel like themselves in their own bodies. You know, that if the statistics bear out amongst teenage girls, there are teenage girls in this place who are dealing with eating disorders and self-harm because they just don't feel like themselves. They don't know where they fit, where they belong. Do you know who's desperate in this room? And what I mean when I say that is not like a rumor, like, oh, you know, they're having marriage problems. But rather because you're in their life. You're walking with them in their marriage problems and they with you in yours. One of the ways that we enter in further with Jesus and hand our lives over to him is actually by handing our lives and our autonomy over to one another in the body of Christ. Suffering is not meant to be a solo act. And restoration rarely happens in isolation. 
It's why we talk about being an extended family and why we call people into small groups because we're actually meant to take steps from large settings into smaller groups, into people that become best friends who share deeply with one another, men with men, women with women, men and women together, older and younger, connecting with one another on deeper levels. And that means sometimes it's forced things like, hey, we're all in the same room, or some things like joining a small group where you aren't really best friends with anybody, but out of that comes friendships and commitment and surrendering our autonomy to one another, our closed nature to one another, so that we can open each other up to the voice of God and the care of God and the hands of God in each other's lives. One of the ways we hand over our life to the one who handed his life over for us is by committing to one another. And the other way is just pretty obvious. It's what all three did in common in our passage. All three of them did the same thing. All three of them are so desperate that they fall down before Jesus. You know, when you realize you're really in need and you meet Jesus, you fall down before him. And that's essentially what faith is. Faith is laying your plans down before Jesus, falling down before him, not necessarily physically, but in your will, your autonomy, yourself, acknowledging who Jesus is and willingly surrendering the outcomes of your life to him, being able to say, thy will be done. In Mark 5, Jesus gives each of the people who come to him, each of the person, people who meet him, more than they are asking for. But he also asks of them more than they're looking to give. He doesn't just want to deal with our plumbing emergencies. He doesn't want to just offer some advice on our cottage remodel. He's got blueprints. He's got plans for a palace for you and me, and he wants to live in it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I am cognizant that there are many people in here who are dealing with horrible things, great anxiety and stress and suffering and challenges. I pray that you would meet them in their immediate need, but I pray as well that you would meet them in their greater restoration. And I pray that you would call each of us into that relationship with you that doesn't just go to you in emergencies, but dwells with you and you in us. Enable us to commit to one another and to lay down our lives before you, our builder, our maker, our redeemer and friend. Amen.
Thank you.